Father God, um, I just want to come before you, uh, before we open up your word, and just thank you for your control, your authority, uh, for being so awesome, uh, and for giving us a glimpse of what you desire uh, for a church here in the book of Revelation as we uh, are in chapter 2. So, Father God, I ask that you would uh, be with us tonight as we open up your word and um, just reveal to our our hearts and minds what it is you are looking for and um, present your word to us tonight, this evening. Uh, we just pray for that. God, I also want to lift up what is happening in the Middle East right now. Um, God, it always breaks my heart when I see stories about Israel getting attacked and um, the over 700 rockets that were fired at Tel Aviv in the last 24 hours. Um, God, thank you for the technology that has allowed them to protect themselves. I ask you to be with the families of those who are injured. Um, I pray for everyone on both sides of this conflict, um, that you would help usher in a time of peace, that you would help bring us closer um, to your desire. Uh, and God, I, I just ask for protection over your people, over your chosen nation, um, and that you would just be with them throughout what is happening right now. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, we are in Revelation. I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, or if you have even and you want a refresher, these uh, messages are being recorded and podcasted so that you can catch up and you won't feel like you have to miss a thing if you can't be here for a week. Um, but just to sort of recap where we've been, uh, we started out in chapter one because that's the beginning. And we opened that up and we saw the vision of Jesus and then John was told by Jesus to write down the things that he saw, the vision, which was chapter 1, the things which are, which are chapters 2 and 3, and the things which will be hereafter, which is chapters 4. Moving forward, hereafter is the phrase metatauta. I'm going to say that over and over again until we get there, because it's going to be really cool uh, when you see why. So that's where we started, chapter 1, the vision of Christ, and you see all of the description of Christ being related to something in the Old Testament, and it paints a picture of a glorified Jesus. Now, last week, we opened up chapter 2, and we were in the church of Ephesus. We spent the whole night just on the church of Ephesus and the letter that was written to them. So, I will say, we're going to try to get through two tonight. We're going to try to get through Smyrna and Pergamus, or Pergamum. That's just the male and female versions of the word same city. But we're going to try to get through two of them, but just to shortly recap Ephesus. Ephesus was the church that did a lot of stuff right. They were hard workers. They loved the word of God. They cared about doctrine, um, but they had one thing against them. They had, they didn't love Jesus like they did at first. Um, I probably spend a lot more time on Ephesus than I do the other churches, out of own personal bias, because I am mostly convicted by the Church of Ephesus. I found in my personal life, just a quick story, um, you know, when I earned my degree in ministry, and I had learned a lot, I had taken every Bible course that was available, and my 
guidance counselor as I was trying to schedule the rest of my um, electoral classes to finish out my degree was like, you, there are no more Bible classes for you to take. Um, I was just, I was in love with it. But as soon as I got my degree, um, laziness set in, right? And I didn't really come to terms with that um, for probably a couple of years. And then a friend of mine was debating me on eschatology, on the topic we're on right now. And I remember having real firm understanding and foundation of this topic, um, but all of a sudden I couldn't recall all of the things that I had learned, and I went, oh right, I should really be studying and paying attention and doing the things that I did that helped me love God at first. Because my love for God, as soon as I got saved, I was pouring into the scriptures, and that's what made me closer to God. That's what made my faith stronger. That's what showed me how much I loved Him. And so that's when I got this job, especially, I, was, I really started pouring back into the scriptures and doing what I did at first. Uh, and I don't want to stop doing that. But that is my, Ephesus is my conviction, to remember to do the things that helped me love Jesus like I did at first. Um, a quick illustration from the scriptures of what Ephesus might really be talking about or looking like. Do you remember the story of Mary and Martha in the Gospels? Jesus was having dinner at Mary and Martha's house and Lazarus's house. Lazarus, the guy he raised from the dead. And uh, Martha was doing everything right, the correct way according to tradition, according to custom, according to the law. She was taking care and being, you know, taking care of dinner, doing all the preparation, doing all the cleaning, doing all of the work. Uh, and she was getting really, really frustrated at Mary, who was not helping. And when she complained to Jesus about this, Jesus looked at Martha and said, Mary has chosen what is better, because Mary decided to sit at Jesus' feet and spend time with her Lord. And so the illustration is, as much as it is a good thing to work hard and to spend a lot of time doing the right things, the best thing is to spend time at the feet of Jesus. And so with that, we will now move into the Church of Smyrna. A little background on the Church of Smyrna. Um, if you remember, Ephesus was not the capital, but it was the most important city. It was the city where all of the trade routes went to. It's the city where all of the churches, all of the roads in Asia Minor led to Ephesus before they headed to Rome. So it was the center of trade. But if Ephesus had a rival city, it would be Smyrna. Smyrna was known as the Queen of Asia or the Crown of Asia. They called it the most beautiful city. Um, it, this is one thing that's really frustrating when you're reading commentaries about the different churches is that all of these church, all of the cities are like praised, and so sometimes it's hard to keep them separate of what they were talking about. But Smyrna is supposedly the most beautiful city. Um, it also was a port city just like Ephesus and was a center for trade, but not quite as rich or as important as the city of Ephesus. The term Smyrna actually refers to myrrh, um, which is a spice or, or essence that they would use in burial, so it's a reference to death. Just the city name itself. It is one of the 
just a little interesting tidbit. It's an ancient city that was actually a planned city. Not like, because there's a natural resource, we're just sort of building around it. It was actually like a planned grid city when it was originally built. Um, it was originally built in 1000 BC. It was, however, destroyed um, and I think, I can't read my own handwriting, 800 or 600 BC. <laughs> um, it was destroyed through natural circumstances, earthquakes, things like that. They're also, you know, ravaging and war and stuff. But mostly, I believe it was natural disasters that caused the uh, downfall of Smyrna. But it was then rebuilt um, to that same glorious building stand. Now, the reason I bring that up is because of the title that Jesus gives himself when he opens up the letter. Um, but one more interesting tidbit about Smyrna. It is the place where Polycarp preached. Polycarp was a direct disciple of John the Apostle who wrote the book of Revelation. And uh, Polycarp was burned at the stake. The legend goes that Polycarp woke up one day and had a dream that he was meant to be burned at the stake and then, of course, the Romans came and they did that exact, exactly what they said they would do. They tossed oil on him and burned him at the stake. Um, but legend says that the fire like wouldn't consume him. So they ended up stabbing him with swords because the fire wouldn't consume him. Um, that's all sort of legend, but it was directly related to the type of persecution that happened in the city of Smyrna. So Polycarp, direct disciple of John the Apostle, um, is probably the most famous martyr from the city of Smyrna. So here we go. Let's dig into verse eight. And the angel of the church in, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write these things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So let's pause. Um, one of the things I want to note with every church is the title that Jesus gives himself. The title Jesus gave himself to Smyrna is the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. Now the interesting part about that is we just talked about the fact that the name Smyrna, the city's name itself, is representative of death. The city itself had already gone through death and rebirth, um, and this will be even more related to what the, the church or the Christians in the city of Smyrna are dealing with as we move through this. But he says, I know your works, the tribulation, and poverty. So they were struggling um, they were getting persecuted, they were struggling, they did not have money. But Jesus says, you are rich. This is an interesting thing to me because I think we have our own standards of how we judge the successes of a church. I think we tend to look at how many butts are in the seats, how much money is in the bank account. Um, so some other statistics that churches use are you know, how many... How many salvations do they see or people giving their lives to Christ on a Sunday morning? How many baptisms do they do within a year? We have our own sort of standard for what is, what is happening. But Jesus is saying, 
I recognize the trouble that you're going through, and I see what you've done, and the poverty that you're experiencing in the empty bank account. But from his perspective, from his heavenly perspective, you are rich. And he says he knows the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews, and they are not, but they are a synagogue of Satan. So what is he, what is he talking about? Well, Smyrna was infamous for pagan worship. They had, I'll just read you a list of some of the temples they had um, to pagan deities. So they had a temple to Sybil, to Zeus, to Apollo, uh, Nemesius, Aphrodite, Asclepius, um, just to name some. They had like a dozen temples to pagan gods. There was a lot of pagan worship happening in the city of Smyrna. So what is happening here, what he's referring to is there, there are Jews in the city of Smyrna who are not believers of Jesus, but they also have mixed their worship of God from the Jewish tradition with pagan worship, just like you see all throughout the history of the Old Testament. You also see that these people who knew the scriptures, who teach the scriptures, continually missed who Jesus is. And they are not seeing their Messiah in their own synagogues, preaching from their scriptures and missing the point. That's what he's saying. Now, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. So he's letting them know they are about to go through tough times. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Uh, so he's promising tribulation. He's promising those who stand up for Christ, you will experience pushback, you will experience persecution for his name because the world hated him. But he says, be faithful until death. And he will give you the crown of life. If you have a highlighter or a pen, circle that crown because that will come up later as we move through because I want you to recognize who the church is crown of life. And he says, this, he ends every letter with the same greeting. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, meaning this, even though this was addressed to the church of Smyrna, it's relevant to every church. And then to he who overcomes, you will not be hurt by the second death. So there's also an overcomer at the end of each church. So think of it this way. The letter is representative to the body, to the worshiping body, but the overcomer is to the individual. And so I know last week we sort of had a discussion about how harsh Jesus could be in these letters. Recognize he's being harsh to the system, to the idea, to the whole body of believers there, to the church as a whole, but to the individual, there is a separate promise to the overcomer. 
those who choose to follow him and not fall into the traps. Now, in every church, there's usually some good and some bad. Smyrna is different. There are two churches in Revelation that have nothing bad said about them, and there are two churches that have nothing good said about them. Smyrna is one of the, one of the two that has nothing bad said about it. And so this is what we see. A church in poverty, but that is growing because of the persecution that is put on them. Now, that, that's not in there, but the truth is in church history, the persecution of the church has always brought about growing numbers. It's really hard to deny the power of God when the people you are persecuting love you. And so this is sort of an interesting turning point as we move to the next church. But before we do, there is one thing that I want to cover. The 10 days, they will experience persecution for 10 days. What does that mean? Is it really just 10 days? Um, is that we wrote this whole letter for 10 days of persecution? Doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, there are some commentaries that will state that what it really means is there will be swift, hard persecution on this church, on this specific church in the city. So it's going to be really, really difficult, but it will be over quickly. Um, I don't personally buy into that, but I offer that to you as a standard of what could be interpreted from the Church of Smyrna. I think it's much more likely, especially because it lines up so well, that the 10 days of persecution are actually representative of 10 individual Roman emperors that were particularly nasty. And I'll read them to you. Nero, Domitian, Trajan, Marcus Aurelius, um, sub, I, don't, I don't know if I can say that, <laughs> uh, Septimus Severus, Maximinus, Decius, Valerian, Aurelian, and Diocletian. They were particularly nasty. Uh, some of these emperors would even sew up live Christians inside of dead animals and then have lions attack them and eat them alive. Um, they would, you know, tie them up to different poles, throw oil on them, burn them at the stake. Lots of different horrible, they're trying to set an example, don't mess with the power of Rome. And so when we wrap this up, recognize that there will be a long, long run of persecution against the church on, by the hands of Rome. And so the personal application for the church of Smyrna is to recognize when you stand up for Christ, you may experience some pushback from the world because the world doesn't like it too much. But you will be rewarded with the crown of life, and it's worth it. And our standard is not always Jesus' standard for what the success of a good church means. From a global position or a prophetic position, this is the church that experienced a ton of persecution. So this is right, the post-apostolic church. Um, we talked about the seven churches potentially could represent different seven different periods of church history. Ephesus being the apostolic church. Smyrna representing the post-apostolic church. 
during that horrible reign of ten emperors um, in a row that were extremely persecutory of the church. And then you contrast that with Pergamos or Pergamum. Pergamum, background, was the capital of Asia Minor. So Ephesus was the most important city. Pergamum was the capital. So Ephesus was New York City. Pergamum is Albany. All right? Except it doesn't, that metaphor doesn't completely work because Pergamum was not just a, was not a commercial giant. It wasn't a, a center of trade, but it was a cultural center. It was the cultural hub of Asia Minor. It was the place where Caesar worship happened. Um, they had a huge library, huge. It was second only to the Library of Alexandria in the ancient world. It was the second largest library in ancient history. Um, it, was, it was the administrative center of the world as well as the religious center. They had a lot of different idols. One of them was of the god Dionysius. Um, Dionysius was half man, half goat, goat on the bottom, man on the top. If you've ever seen Chronicles of Narnia, it's like the fawns. Um, but he had horns, horns on his head. Um, and that's actually, the picture of Dionysius is where we get the caricature of the devil today with the horns and the funny legs and the pitchfork. Um, so it's drawn based on the, the god Dionysius, the pagan god Dionysius. That's not what Satan looks like. Satan is an angel of light. But that's sort of where our modern mind goes as we westernize things. So let's go through the church of Pergamos. He says, and to the angel or messenger of the church of Pergamos, write, these things says, he who has the sharp two-edged sword. So that's the title Jesus gives himself. He who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So he's saying, he's basically saying his name is the word of God. His name is a sharp two-edged sword. Um, he's calling Pergamum the city where Satan sits. There are three potential interpretations for what that means. It could mean in relation to Dionysius and that caricature of the devil that we have now. Um, it could represent the worship of Asclepius, who was the god of healing. Or it could also, and most likely represents the fact that Pergamum, being the capital, being the cultural hub, was the place where once a year you had to go and pay tribute to Caesar and worship Caesar, um, which, which is very much related to some of Jesus' last words before he went to the cross. When they were persecuting Jesus and trying to pressure Pilate into crucifying Jesus, and he said, what am I supposed to do with this Jesus who is called the Christ after they released uh, Barabbas? And they said, crucify him. And he said, you want me to crucify your king? And they said, we have no king but Caesar. And they handed over their worship from God 
to worship of Caesar, which is not good. So we have that as likely the interpretation of why this is the seat, why this is the place where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those which who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. Now, we talked about the Nicolaitans in Ephesus. They were likely followers of Nicholas of Antioch, who taught an extreme version of grace and almost tried to erase hell from the picture. You could do whatever you wanted to do. Don't worry, Jesus covered everybody, um, which is taking grace too far. You have to accept Jesus. You have to follow him. Um, And so Jesus hates that doctrine. But, more importantly, he's talking about Balak and Balaam. This is a story from Numbers chapter 22 through 25 to understand what he is talking about. So, this is the story of Balak and Balaam, Numbers chapter 22 through 25, if you would like to read it um, and fill fill yourself in. But basically, Balak is the king of Moab, and he's having a really hard time defeating the Israelites. So he hires Balaam. Balaam is like a prophet. He practices the art of divination. He speaks to spirits. um, And he's sort of just a prophet for hire. Balak says, Balaam, I want you to curse Israel. So Balaam gets hired to curse Israel. And he says, I will do whatever the Lord tells me to do. So Balaam basically makes up in his mind he's going to go out and he's going to curse Israel. But on his way to the battlefield where he's going to curse Israel, um, the angel of the Lord shows up as he's riding his donkey. The donkey sees the angel of the Lord, but Balaam doesn't. And so the donkey stops and Balaam has a little argument with his donkey and the donkey actually talks to him. It's a weird story. But ultimately... The angel of the Lord speaks to Balaam, and he finally sees him, and uh, he gets to a point where he realizes that he is not allowed to curse Israel. And he goes through three, three different situations where Balak tries to convince Balaam to curse Israel in a battle, and every time Balaam blesses Israel instead of cursing them because of what God told him to do. And Balak is really frustrated with Balaam. It's really hard to say those names back and forth and try to keep track of who I'm talking about. So Balak is really frustrated with Balaam because he hired him to do a job that he's not doing. And so he talks to him and says, what's the deal? And basically, Balaam says, the Lord God told me that I can't curse Israel. I have have to bless them. But I might not be able to to curse them, but I have an idea for you. And he gives them an idea to allow the Moabitess women to come into the camp and entice the men um, and then get them to eat food, sacrifice to idols, and commit sexual immorality. Because part of their practice was actually prostitution was a part of their worship um, in the pagan cities. And so they try to get them to invite them into that practice. And so that's what's being talked about. Um, Again, if you remember, Pergamum is also 
heavy into pagan worship and involves some of the same practices, talking about the synagogue of the Jews who were not really, who Jesus called the synagogue of Satan. So the same sort of practices were being mixed in Pergamum that were happening way back in the book of Numbers. So that's what that's referring to. I'm going to try to get through the rest of this really quickly. Um, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So this is the two-edged sword. This is where it comes back. Jesus is saying, if you don't repent, I will strike you down with my word. He who has an ear, he who has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give you some of the hidden manna to eat. Manna is the bread of life. So he's, think of communion. He's giving himself the bread of life to eat, taking part in the Last Supper. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So let's talk about the white stone really quickly. There's two possibilities for what he's talking about when he says the white stone. One is in the ancient judicial system, when you would bring a case before the judge, the, the people judging would have a white stone and a black stone. A black stone would mean they are casting you as guilty. A white stone meaning as innocent. So they're voting in your favor. So that's one potential meaning for it, and one I think is good, and I like that. I like that Jesus is saying, I will be your advocate and allow you to be innocent before me. The other option is during the athletic games. You would be given um, a victor's pass to to join the celebration for the, with the other victors of the games. And that would be a white stone. So it's also saying, to the overcomer, to the one who overcomes this pagan idolatry, I will give you a white stone to be an overcomer, and you can come join the victor celebration. Either one of those works for me. Um, so as we sort of close up on the idea of Pergamum, the title of Jesus is... Um, the one with the two-edged sword. He will strike those down who do not overcome. That's where that's related. The good, did I write that down? The good, is they stayed faithful to the name of Jesus even in the midst of pagan and emperor worship. The bad, however, is that they did hold to some false teaching and false doctrine which Jesus hates. In the name of Pergamum, is related to marriage, in a whole marriage. And uh, if this was prophetic, if we're talking about the prophetic timeline, we've dealt with the apostolic church, the post-apostolic church, which dealt with all of that persecution, and then the next emperor was Constantine, who married church and state. The church of Pergamum, is in, the name of the city is in relation to marriage. Um, so if we're talking about the prophetic timeline, then we're talking about the church of the Middle Ages that started with Constantine. And the contrast between the church who was under persecution and would stop at nothing to stand up for Jesus, despite their persecution that grew, and the church that was married to the state and started to become corrupt as things got easy for them, is the contrast between those two churches. So that's how we'll close tonight as we think about that and move into our discussion time. So let's pray. Father God, thank you 
again for your word, uh, for the ability to come together to learn a little bit more about you, about your plan. God, I pray that you would bless this next segment of time together uh, as we move into a discussion uh, and try to understand a little bit more about you, your word, and your plan. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.